Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 3 and we're dealing with a period up to the invasion of the islands by the Argentinians on the 2nd of April 1982. Had it been a day earlier, most people across the world would have thought that the news was a horrendous April Fool joke, but it wasn't. As we heard last episode, by 1971, negotiations between the British and the Argentinians had vacillated between good intentions and terrible breakdowns. Throughout the 1960s, the British were trying to figure out how to offload the Falklands without causing political condemnation at home. That changed by the 70s. The British were becoming more hesitant about the whole idea, despite pressure from the United Nations and other international agencies. At the same time, the Argentinian right-wing dictatorship had made the Falklands Malvinas their main target to instigate international anger and to placate their own citizens. Foreign Minister Costa Mendes was leading the communication. He was vocal and urbane and a devout Argentinian nationalist. The British Parliament and then successive cabinets became instinctively hostile to Whitehall's determination to pursue negotiations. The technocrats just saw rising costs at a time of economic fragility, but politicians were equally uncomfortable throwing the 1800 Falklanders under an Argentinian bus. As Max Hastings and Simon Jenkins ask in their excellent book The Battle for the Falklands, why didn't the Foreign Office just simply give up? Instead, they kept ploughing on, trying to find a negotiated solution. Last episode, you heard about the 1971 Communications Agreement with Buenos Aires, which was managed by the Undersecretary for Dependent Territories, David Scott. The Falkland people were not going to be pushed aside by Whitehall so easily. The Kelpers, as they called themselves, had lived for over a century as tenants to the Falkland Islands Company, along with nine absentee farm-owning landlords. The latter were a source of much of the trouble. They'd bled the Falklands white from the safety of their London lounges. It was a curious reality. The nine rich landlords lived in the United Kingdom, the Kelpers in the Falklands. By 1976, the Shackleton Report, which outlined the island's positive economic potential, was oft quoted by the Kelpers, but part of the report was not that welcome, and that was the finding that there was a sense of constant dependency created by the workforce. There was virtually no private sector whatsoever on the islands. Almost everyone was employed by the Falkland Islands Company, the FIC, or by the government directly. Shackleton pointed out that this had bred what he said was a lack of confidence and enterprise at the individual and community level and a degree of acceptance of their situation which verges on apathy. Others took this a little further. Marine expert Ewan Southby-Taylor, who fought in the Falklands War, explained in his view that the island's problems were linked directly to the poor quality of the workforce. He said they were, for the most part, a drunken, decadent, immoral and indolent collection of dropouts. Now that's a tad harsh, and the Kelpers were quite rightly indignant, but he wasn't finished. Oh no. These characteristics, he said, are evident at all levels of society, with only a frighteningly few exceptions. Now, if I were the Falklanders, I'd feel a little hard done by. But you must understand that journalist P.J. O'Rourke wrote a book called Holidays in Hell, where he said of my country that the problem with South Africans is, they're all drunk. So don't feel too poorly, my friendly Kelpers. Sometimes insults are accurate, albeit verging on libelous. Immigration was the Falklands' big problem, along with its surplus of the ratio of men to women. 
On West Falklands before the war, the ratio was more than 2 to 1. This was compounded by a full-time marine garrison. Only 40 strong, there were about 1 to 2 marriages a year, and when the troops left to be deployed in the UK or Europe, the Falklands' wife left for good. The divorce rate on the Falklands also pointed to a somewhat unhealthy social reality. In a community of just 1,800 people by 1972, the divorce rate was three times higher than a roughly equivalent Scots Island community. Furthermore, the main export wool encouraged a certain kind of settler to the camp, as the territory outside of Port Stanley was called. It was a solitary existence. That compares poorly to island communities which make their living off fisheries, which tends to make for an increased interdependence of community. Shepherds are by nature solitary. They don't meet much. They operate individually. Fishermen, on the other hand, are generally gregarious in comparison. While the Falklands fishery industry is now a major player, back in those days there was no fishing industry. As more modern entrepreneurs know, Falklands calamari or squid and other delicacies are highly sought after, but before the Falklands War this was not the case. Island cohesion before the war was based on human interaction between families and neighbours, not strong local institutions or cultural traditions. The war, by the way, changed that. It's now a rallying point for the Kelpers. Back then, the Falklands was a far more fragile society threatened by change and intrusion. Visiting teachers, soldiers, scientists and government officials were viewed as threats. They represented an outside better life. This is the same as other small island communities which view outsiders other than tourists in a poor light. And so this communication agreement of 1971, which featured the airline I spoke about last episode, and a closer working relationship between England and Argentina began amicably enough. The younger islanders welcomed the change. Scholarships were offered for mainland schools in Argentina. There were local jokes about new arrivals such as oranges, gauchos, and women. In January 1972, an albatross flying boat landed off Port Stanley to commence a twice-monthly service to Commodoro Rivadavia, and soon it was hoped an airstrip would be hewn out of the heap. 350 Argentine tourists arrived on board the first major cruise liner called the Libertad. That single visit emptied Port Stanley of its entire stock of souvenirs. All seemed swanky, but then the backsliding began, and it began with the British. Despite the signed agreement David Scott had managed to concoct back in the UK, the Treasury peered suspiciously at what this meant. They refused to pay for a maritime link to an Argentine port to replace the Darwin. So the Argentinian links immediately became more crucial and strategically that's not very clever unless you're trying to rid yourself of the Falklanders. Whitehall's position though had shifted. It no longer wanted the islands to be assimilated by Argentina because the political fallout was too grave. British engineers surveyed Cape Pembroke outside Port Stanley, where they found ground suitable for an airfield, but the cost of the foundation work was way beyond the resources of the Falkland Islands budget. It was push-me-pull-you internal machinations going on back in England at the same time. Talk about confusion. The Foreign Office failed to drum up the finance from the Overseas Development Agency, so the British failed to honour their agreement with Argentinians. This didn't worry Buenos Aires too much and they immediately offered to lay a temporary runway themselves if the British wouldn't mind buying the steel mesh strip from the Americans. No, they didn't mind, and a cool one million US dollars later, 
The mesh strip was purchased as part of a defense package with the Americans, which included an exchange of intelligence on jump jet technology. The next moves were pure Marx Brothers. There, at Buenos Aires Harbor, stood the British ambassador, Sir Michael Haddo, waving off the Argentinian naval transport Cabo San Gonzalo, along with 900 tons of construction and air control equipment, and 40 workmen and technicians. Back in the UK, the yellow press exploded in anger. So too did the Financial Times, which led the report with the words, The Argentines have finally established a beachhead on the Falklands. Furthermore, wrote our local FT correspondent, as he listed the Cabo San Gonzalo manifest, Each item implies the ratification of Argentina's sovereignty. This tripped off what Jenkins and Hastings call a severe bout of interdepartmental warfare back in London. The Argentinians duly laid the mesh airstrip when suddenly the overseas development agency got cold feet on all costs and wondered why the British were building an airport in the Falklands. Let's see, they said, how the Argentine Foco Friendship Service did before building the permanent strip. Anyway, they continued, surely a longer runway would be ideal for an Argentinian invasion. So the tender that went out eventually was for a short runway, which meant a possible new source of revenue from long-distance flights, perhaps from the UK to New Zealand via the South Pole, were out. The promise of a new sea link to the mainland vanished. Across the short hop from the Falklands to mainland Argentina, things were going to throw a further spanner in the works. The military dictatorship of General Organia was weakening and leftist students were rioting. Perón was still alive and causing his own sense of chaos from his armchair back in Madrid, so the military flew him home, hoping that the sight of the now aging hero would demythologize his name and divide his followers. Fat chance. It was a classic political miscalculation, and by 1973 Perón was back in power as Presidente of Argentina. The fact that he was dying didn't faze his followers, but what he did do was reinforce pre-World War II fascism in Argentina. Popularism was back, and his adoring crowds were hysterical. The good faith that had characterized some of the British-Argentinian wheeler dealing evaporated. But it wasn't all Perón's fault, nor the fault of the haphazard British Whitehall technocratic system. When the first flight took off to the new $1 million steel mesh runway, Foreign Office functionary David Scott, who was in Buenos Aires, was shocked to see the plane was full of senior Argentinian military officers in uniform. Here, the Marx Brothers analogy is pertinent. Scott sent a hurried message to Falkland Islands Governor Toby Lewis to run up the British flag at the airstrip and to appear in full dress regalia, plumes blowing in the strong Falklands wind. The islanders were aghast. What? Was this a covert invasion, instigated by those limp-wristed, weedy, wishy-washy wastrels of the not-to-be-trusted British Foreign Office? The island's secretary, John Lang, had what appears to have been a mild brain fog and ordered out the marine detachment on patrol. A joyful event had been planned, but it turned into a joyless mishmash of miscommunications. Buenos Aires, as I've said, was playing its part. Peronistas had the upper hand. They had abandoned all sense of decorum. The Argentinian UN ambassador reopened the issue of sovereignty. Peronist journals such as the Cronica and Mayoria 
blasted off Argentinian jingoistic op-eds. Back in Port Stanley, the British technocrats banished to the island added their own fuel to the hateful fire, and at precisely that point, in London, the Falkland Islands Committee was reformed as Hunter Christie rubbed his imperialist hands in glee. Meanwhile, oil. The Argentinians imported all fuel and oil to the plains at the new Mesh airfield through a state-owned entity called YFP. All staff pumping said oil would be Argentinian. The British, being a somewhat tone-deaf administration, chose to announce at precisely this moment that the new concrete runway would in fact be built at Cape Pembroke. More narrowing of eyes by the Kelpers at this news. They had lost their monthly supply ship and received a less-than-reliable Argentinian air service as a kind of Sophie's choice. The island was awash with Argentinian men building things. Argentinian oil was flowing. In December 1974, the Peronists ordered their ambassador in London, Manuel Anchorena, back to Buenos Aires, where he was then publicly insulted and called a lawyer for the British. Buenos Aires followed that up with imposing immigration controls on air travel to and from the Falklands. The white card was replaced by one declaring the Falklands citizens were Argentinian citizens of the Malvinas. By removing formal transport links, the British had set this in motion, now the Falklanders could not leave the island using standard transport without accepting that they were Argentinian citizens. London had effectively handed over passport control of their people to Buenos Aires. Another commission was sent to the islands by the British in 1976, led by Lord Shackleton once more, who Argentina now was referring to as a pirate and buccaneer. Apparently he delighted in that, and who wouldn't? Because the Argentinians hated him so much. The British had to carry him from Montevideo to Port Stanley on board the naval Antarctic vessel Endurance instead of using the newly established Argentinian flight service. Buenos Aires duly severed ambassadorial relations over that slight five years of diplomacy in ruins. In February 1976, Shackleton sailed to South Georgia to visit his father's grave in what was their own version of tone deafism the Argentinians sent their naval vessel, the Admiral Storni, to fire across the bows of a British naval vessel in the South Atlantic called the Shackleton. However, Lord Shackleton wasn't on board. The Argentinians had their wires crossed. A British frigate called the Chichester sailing home then diverted from Hong Kong to Port Stanley as a form of naval reinforcement. The signs of direct conflict were increasing. Lord Shackleton's report to the government was delivered in June 1976, just as Harold Wilson was nudged out by James Callaghan as Prime Minister. Shackleton's 400-page report on the Falklands became crucial. It was updated to version 2 in July 1982, after the invasion and the war. Shackleton stressed that in his view the islands were not a drain on the British taxpayer, which was really only true by the early 1980s. At this stage, they were a drain. He warned that the nine rich men who owned the farms were actively maintaining their investment in the Falklands while channeling their profits into their own pockets back home. It was true. These nine had funneled £11.5 million more in profits out of the Falklands between 1951 and 1974 than they actually had invested in the Falklands. Their greed had caused most of the islanders' sense of grievance against the government. Shackleton laid into these greedy few. 
and he presented the islands as a potential investor's paradise with trawler fishing, land improvement, seaweed production, salmon farming, road construction, tourism, oil exploration. Build a proper airfield, he said, to enable medium-haul jets and part-loaded long-haul jets. Most of these ideas at the time were pie in the sky, but one wasn't. That was the idea that land holding should be diversified out of the Falklands Island Company. And he also suggested investing around £13 million into the islands. These suggestions were good news for the lobby group, the Falkland Islands Committee. They were bad news, though, for the Foreign Office, which could barely scrape together a million US dollars, and here was the £13 million suggestion. Meanwhile, the Argentinians were hatching a plan which had previously been laid. The Argentine Navy had a blueprint for an invasion of the Malvinas, which had been drawn up in the early 1960s. The Peronists had retired the senior Navy officers in 1973 and put a junior Admiral Emilio Macera in control. As all juniors do, they tend to fluff up their egos, and he began what is called a period of intense naval aggrandizement. He built a Navy Air Force for a start, equipped with American and French jets. These were going to sow some fear amongst the British seafarers in the upcoming war. Mirages are very scary fighter jets. He also strengthened the marine commandos and established land and air bases along the coast. It just so happens that the Navy Mechanical School became the most notorious Argentinian torture centre. All young officers were inducted into the school of torture. Beating people to death is extremely hard work, and the Argentinian fascists of the time were equal opportunity employers. Masera had watched how easily the Indian government had seized the hippie haven of Goa in 1961 with Neri and international twitch. The Portuguese did nothing. The UN even less than nothing. And so the infamous Masera Anaya plan was hatched and called, ironically, Plan Goa. Nothing given away there. I wonder what he meant, mused the tea lady as she shuffled the papers aside. Plan Goa was put before the new Videla Junta in 1976 after the coup, then again after Argentina won the 1978 Soccer World Cup. So don't tell me that sports and politics are separate. The Argentinians, South Africans and now the Russians have proved that a fallacy. Buenos Aires wanted to test the water. So at the end of 1976, 50 Argentinians they called specialists were put ashore on the British southern tool part of the South Sandwich Islands. Buenos Aires whistled past the graveyard on that invasion. They didn't say a word other than deny it had happened. I mean, who's going to know? Well, a ham radio operator sitting at his desk in the Falklands for a start who blew the whistle. The British government took its time to admit this. It was only in May 1978 that Callahan's people revealed that the invasion of Southern Tool had happened two years before, and not only did they know about it, they weren't going to do anything about it. Buenos Aires by now was convinced that the average British politician had the spine of a single-cell amoeba. Instead of using the invasion of Southern Thule as a reason to stop negotiating with the Argentinians, the British government flip-flopped. In February 1977, Foreign Secretary Anthony Crosland said the Falklands were going to need another round of commissions to decide to do something, or possibly nothing. Junior Minister Ted Rowlands was sent off to the South Atlantic, where he arrived in the same month. His visit was a mild success. He was a wiry extrovert from the Welsh Valleys who liked to be seen as a public bar conviviality. 
It was time, said Rodens, for action. More talk, in other words. First, there was a minor infraction in November 1977 where the British believed that the Falklands were about to be invaded and dispatched two frigates and a submarine to the South Atlantic. Parliament only found out about this just before the war in 1982. The Cabinet and Intelligence Community back in 1977 overreacted to perceived threat which didn't materialise. This is one theory about why the British reacted so slowly when the Argentinians lined up their invasion fleet in April 1982. London thought it was going to be another case of cry wolf. With that, we must drop anchor and view the blinking lights of Port Stanley. Next episode, you'll hear about the Argentinian plan of attack and what the new Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher thought about intelligence being gathered. The theme to the series is a brilliant composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. So thanks, Kevin, for letting me use your music. Please rate the podcast on iTunes, or you can email me from the website abwarpodcast.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.